Hello there, welcome back to the EuropolX podcast, the only podcast on your feed that has never been to an illegal party. I'm Ewan Healy, and with me, of course, is my very good friend, Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel, how are you doing? Hello, yeah, all good things, all good things. I'm happy we're out of uh, January, going towards uh, spring quickly, I hope, so that's nice. Uh, And things are pretty much um, back to normal for me in terms of my everyday life now, which is nice, I must say. Um, How about you? What's life like up in... Scotland. Things are well here. We've had a storm the last few days. It's been very windy, very, very windy, but it's been but it's been fine. And I've been looking forward to recording this episode all week. Do you want to know why? Because it's our 50th episode, Gabriel. 50th episode of the podcast. Would you believe that? 50 episodes. No. <laughs> no, it's crazy. No, I wouldn't. It really doesn't feel like we've done this 50 times. Gosh. No, I keep thinking that you know, oh yeah, our podcast is about six months old, but it's been it's been a long time. I know, over two years. Our podcast is walking, talking. It's been so long. Gosh. <laughs> and for the fiftieth time, we have a very exciting episode coming up, haven't we, Gabriel? We've got an interview today with political scientist and researcher Raquel Vazpinto to talk about the results of the SNAP national parliamentary election in Portugal. Lots of juicy content to talk about there. Before we crack on with all of that, before we do our headlines from across the continent, here's a little message about how you can support us and our podcast. Do you want to be one of the volunteers that are behind EuropeLex in this podcast you're listening to? We are currently on the lookout for an audiovisual editor that could help our podcast and YouTube team create and edit content like what you are listening to right now, but only better, of course. If you're interested in joining our team or know someone who would be, do reach out to us at podcast at europelex.eu. We at EuropeLex are run wholly by volunteers. We aren't funded by big donors and everything we do, including this very podcast here, is only possible with the help of our supporters. And of course, we always want to carry on what we're doing and do so much more. We've started sharing exclusive discussions, special content, and more via our Patreon. Access all of it from as little as one euro a month. Don't miss out and support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. We begin our headlines this week with the midterm change of guard and the election of the Maltese MEP Roberta Metzola from the centre-right European People's Party to the position of President of the European Parliament. That took place on January the 18th, which also happened to be Metzola's birthday, so a very good birthday present for her. The result was more or less expected by politics watchers over in the Brussels bubble, especially after the centre-left S&D, along with the Liberal Renew groups, reached a deal with the EPP a day before to ensure a stable working majority until the 2024 elections. The result was historic, not only in that Metzola is the third woman to be elected president in as many decades of the parliament's history, after, of course, Simone Weil and Nicole Fontaine, but also in that the vote was contested exclusively by women candidates after the candidate for the National Conservative ECR withdrew. Metzola was elected from the first round with 458 votes out of 616 cast. The Green candidate, Alice Barkunka from Sweden, received 101 votes beyond the nominal strength of her group. And the left candidate, Sira Regal from Spain, received 57 votes, again drawing slightly more than her group's total seats. As per the process to elect the parliament president, the vote was secret, which means we do not know who voted for whom. But the support of three political groups seems to have been mostly held, despite earlier complaints from some Renew MEPs on Metzola's personal anti-abortion stance. Despite possible defections from other three groups, Metzola could have attracted votes from ECR MEPs after their candidate, Polish MEP Kosmos Rutowski, withdrew. In the days following Metzola's election, the MEPs elected the body's 14 vice president and five questers, which is often seen as the bellwether of alliances and arrangements crafted between the political groups. Beyond what's been put down on paper, the three mainstream groups of the European Parliament agreed on the S&D increasing vice presidency seats held from four to five and Renew increasing its VP seats from one to three. However, the Socialists and Democrats did not manage to unseat EPP member Klaus Weller from the powerful seat of the Secretary General of the Parliament as they reportedly wanted to. The EPP now holds three vice presidential seats. The ECR left and Greens have each got one. 
Moving from the European Parliament to some electoral news now, as the Portuguese went to the polls this past Sunday to vote in an election they didn't want. In the months leading up to the election, the ruling centre-left Socialist Party, or PS, held a steady lead against its rival, the Social Democratic Party, PSD. However, in the weeks before the election, polling numbers began to tighten, with a couple of polls even placing PSD in first place for the first time in six years. Those proved to be inaccurate, however, or not reflect the wishes of the electorate on election day, because the outcome was anything but tight in the end, with PS winning by a 14-point margin in what can only be described as a landslide, especially as all but one of the country's 20 electoral districts saw PS achieve plurality, meaning they got the most votes of all parties. After years of internal infighting between the leaders' faction and the right-wing opposition, the centre-right PSD entered this election without a united party. While achieving second place, it lost three MPs compared to the previous election and created a power vacuum on the right of centre, which parties such as right-wing Chega and Renew Europe-affiliated Liberal Initiative managed to fail, respectively becoming the third and fourth biggest political forces in the new parliament. On the left, besides Green left Livre, managing to regain the representation after a feud between the party's structures and their former MP. We saw the results for the left-wing left bloc, BE, and the green left CDU coalition reaching a 20-year low and a record low, respectively, so a bad night for them. However, the biggest loser of the night turned out to be the centre-right People's Party, CDS slash PP, which is leaving the parliament for the first time in 47 years of representation and having participated in a total of six governments. For more info on all this, please hang around for later in the episode, where I'll be interviewing Raquel Vaspinto, Portuguese political scientist specialized in international relations, and actually a former member of CDS as well, although that won't be the focus of our discussion. It will be all about the outcome of this stonking majority for PS, and how the right-wing parties will react to it as well in the coming years. So do stick around for that. Also, if you're still eager to learn more about what took place in this election, do check out the post-election article written by Celso Gomez and Guillermo Ferreira Resende on europelex.eu. Now, the most switched on of you guys out there, our listeners, will remember that in the previous episode, we brought you news of Italy's presidential election, where there was a fierce competition underway to replace the incumbent president, Sergio Mattarella. While eligible for a second term, at the time of our previous recording, Mattarella had ruled out continuing as the Mediterranean nation's head of state. Well, dear listener, that serves us right for reporting what a politician had said, because this week we bring you news that... Mattarella has been re-elected as the president, the second person in Italian history to ever serve a second term as the president of Italy. While Prime Minister Mario Draghi had been the favourite going into the contest, we saw a strong opposition forming to his promotion among the 1,009 electors, as many feared what would happen if Draghi's multicoloured coalition collapsed upon his elevation to the presidential palace. In the first two ballots, with more than 900 electors undecided and thus leaving their vote blank, former judge Paolo Medellana topped the poll before Mattarella took the lead in the third and fourth rounds. Now, in the fifth round, the EPP-affiliated Forza Italia's Elisabetta Casalati seemed to be coming up as a new frontrunner with 382 votes to Mattarella's 46. However, this was short-lived, with Mattarella retaking the lead in the sixth round before winning an absolute majority of 759 of 983 total votes cast in the eighth ballot on the 29th of January. Mattarella has now been sworn in for a second seven-year term. However, some have speculated that the 80-year-old former judge and politician may retire before the end of this full term, starting this whole process all over again. We've already talked about the EU Parliament presidential elections, national parliamentary elections, indirect head of state elections. Now let's talk about a referendum. On January 16th, the Serbian citizens voted in favour of the constitutional changes proposed by the government with around 60% supporting the yes option. However, with a turnout of only 30% or around there, the participation was the lowest since the reintroduction of parliamentarism in 1990, and there were reports of irregularities at voting stations as well. While the EU supported the yes option as a step towards accession to the union, the vote was more of a referendum 
referendum on right-wing President Alexander Vucic, and while the yes option won overwhelmingly, it is important to note that it was defeated in the capital, Belgrade, depicting the country's growing divisions. Another important thing to note on this referendum was Kosovo's parliament passing a resolution which banned ethnic Serbians from voting in Serbia's referendum from Kosovo. Kosovo's independence is, of course, not recognised by Serbia. Speaking of unrecognised territories and elections that precipitate long discussions on terminology in our editorial chats, the Turkish Cypriots elected members of their new legislative assembly on January the 23rd. The results point to national conservative two-state solutions supporting the National Union Party coming first with 39.5% of the vote, winning 24 of the 50 seats, so very close to a majority alone. The centre-left Republican Turkish Party followed with 32% and 18 seats. The right-wing Democratic Party with 7.4% and 3 seats. The centrist People's Party won 3 as well. And the far-right Rebirth Party won 2. Despite the fact that Northern Cyprus is not recognised as a state by any country beyond Turkey... The results are a key bellwether of opinion and climate within the Turkish Cypriot community during a period in which negotiations towards the reunification of the country as a federal state are non-existent, partly due to Turkey's and the current Turkish Cypriot leadership's insistence on bringing a two-state solution to the table and partly due to the long pre-election period that has begun in the Republic of Cyprus ahead of next year's presidential elections. The next government of the Turkish Cypriot community is likely to be formed once again by the National Unity Party. Party, the Democratic Party and the Rebirth Party, the coalition which held power before the election. While the National Unity Party and the Republican Turkish Party both saw their support increase, the Republicans are the ones with the biggest gains in seats due to left-wing Turkish Cypriots and disaffected centrists opting to support the party as one of the two main establishment parties in the north of the island. The other development, of course, is the failure of the Social Democratic Party, the Communal Democracy Party, to re-elect any of its three MPs, which of course is important as this is the party that supported the former pro-solution president of the North, Mustafa Ankinci. The head of the party, Jemal Oziyit, has resigned with the current mayor of North Nicosia, Mehmet Harmanchi, seen as his most likely successor. So a downfall there for that centre-left Social Democratic Party. Finland also headed to the polls on January 23rd for their first ever regional elections. While the centre-right National Coalition Party took first place nationally with 21.6% of the vote, the ruling coalition parties can claim victory as almost all of them performed strongly, and together they received close to 60% of the overall vote. Prime Minister Sanna Marin's centre-left Social Democratic Party came second in vote share with 19.3% and received 275 seats. The Liberal Finnish Centre Party came third with 19.3% as well, but received the most seats in the new regional assemblies with 297. The left-wing Left Alliance received 8% and 100 seats. The Green Veer, 7.4% and 90 seats. And finally, the Liberal Swedish Party got 4.9% with 77 seats. Outside the government coalition parties, the right-wing Finns party received 156 regional seats with 11.1% of the vote. The centre-right KD party got 57 seats with 4.2% of the vote. And the centre-right Leek got 1.8% of the vote with 20 seats. And finally, the far-right Finnish party, known as Power Belongs to the People, managed to get 10 seats across the country with just 1.3% of the vote, but still a success for them. It should be noted, crucially, that the capital city Helsinki, that constitutes about 12% of the Finnish population, did not hold a regional election. So these results also skew more to rural representation. And as discussed in our previous episode, the agrarian centre party was expected to overperform due to this, while the Green Party was uh, suspected to underperform as they garner much of their vote from Helsinki. Finally, the turnout in this first ever regional election was at 47.5%, which might seem low, uh, but it's actually higher than what was expected, although it's eight percentage points below last year's municipal elections. But yeah, very exciting. It's not very um, often that we see these kinds of elections being run for the first time following constitutional change. So for uh, political nerds in Finland and around the Europe, um, that was a very exciting event. Yeah, absolutely. And 47.5%, it's not to be not to be sniffed at for a municipal election or a regional election. A lot of countries would 
would, would very much appreciate a 47.5% turnout of election. That's a lot to build on, especially as for new institutions, it tends to increase over time as opposed to yes. decrease after the first election. Now, moving away from election results, we go to Armenia, where intriguing news came from the Southern Caucasus there as the president of the Armenian Republic, Armen Sakisian, resigned from his position on January the 24th. He declared he was suffering from an inability to influence the political life of the country after the constitutional referendum in 2015, in which Armenians decided to become a parliamentary republic as opposed to a presidential one. Since then, the president of Armenia has been left with largely ceremonial powers. Over the last couple of years, especially after the war with Azerbaijan over the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region in 2020, former President Sarkisian had several disagreements with Nikol Pashinyan, the prime minister who took power after the peaceful revolution in 2018. Among others, the two had a serious disagreement over the dismissal of the head of the armed forces in the wake of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. In his resignation statement, President Sarkisian declared that the president does not have the necessary tools to influence the important processes of foreign and domestic policy in difficult times for people and the country. His resignation will of course mean snap presidential elections in due course. In other presidential election news, the president of the Federal Republic of Germany is to be elected through an indirect procedure during the meeting of the Federal Convention on February 13th. The Federal Convention is a constitutional body consisting of Bundestag members, which tally 736 at the moment, which is huge, and an equal number of state electors from the various federal states that make up Germany. The incumbent president, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, is going to finish his first term and is eligible to run for re-election, which is supported by the governing Traffic Light Coalition, as well as the centre-right alliance of CDU and CSU. The left-wing Die Linke and the right-wing AfD are supporting the other two candidates, Gerhard Habert and Max Otte, respectively, with Otte, who is a member of CDU, getting his membership suspended after he accepted the nomination from AfD. But it uh, seems very likely that Steinmeier will be re-elected as all of the big mainstream parties are backing him. But still, stay tuned for presidential election news uh, on February 13th from Germany. Almost a Valentine's Day present for us there. Yeah. On the same day, Germany will be electing a new president. The Castile and Leon autonomous communities of Spain will also be heading to the polls. The region was governed by a coalition of the centre-right PP and the liberal Ciudadanos. However, with relations between the two parties worsening and fearing a possible motion of no confidence in 2022, the PP-affiliated president of the Junta of Castile and Leon, Alfonso Fernández Manueco, announced a snap parliamentary election. Polling at the time of recording shows centre-right PP and the National Conservative Vox to be performing significantly better than in the previous election three years earlier. The centre-left PSOE is polling at second place, quite a bit lower than in 2019, and the large loser of the election seems to be the Liberal Sigidanos, as they are polling at around a third of their last results and losing most or all of their seats. Also potentially significant is that the new party España Vaciada, or Empty Spain in English, will be contesting its first election here and could potentially receive representation. The Rural Interest Party is mainly arguing against the depopulation of rural Spain. Moving on to the always electorally active country of Switzerland, that also has a number of elections on February 13th. So uh, a big day for uh, niche European elections, February 13th. At the national level in Switzerland, there will be four referenda on animal experiments, tobacco ads, taxation, and a proposed media act. The Animal and Human Experiments Initiative calls for a ban on animal experiments and the import of products developed using animal testing and is expected to fail to pass. The Tobacco Ads for Children and Young Adults Initiative aims to ban tobacco and electronic cigarette advertising in all places where children and adolescents might see it and is actually expected to pass, which would be a big change for the country and for that industry. An amendment on the Stamps Duties Act aims to abolish new issues tax on company shares and the measures to benefit the Media Act aim to financially support local and regional media. Both are expected to fail to pass, but polling is somewhat too close to call at this point on those two issues. In other words, we have no choice but to wait to see what happens, and we'll of course be reporting all of the results in our next episode and in our social media channels. Our final news story before we head on to our polling highlights and MEP changes sections, we have to talk about the United Kingdom, where a by-election in the constituency of Southend West is taking place in the east of England. Now, this by-election, you will remember, came about in very sad circumstances following the murder of the seat's Member of Parliament David Amos 
of the Conservative Party in what the British police have described as an act of terror. Following the convention set in 2016, when a by-election was held to replace Joe Cox, another MP tragically killed in an act of terror, no major parties will be running against the candidate of the incumbent party. The result will likely be out by the time you listen to this podcast, and we're very safe to assure that it will be the Conservative candidate, Anna Firth, who will have been comfortably elected to Parliament. However, the election is not entirely uncontested. Multiple smaller parties and candidates have foregone the convention to step aside, offering voters a certain degree of choice. And the most prominent candidates are those of the right-wing UKIP, UK Independence Party, and Jada Franson, an independent political candidate formerly of the far-right English Defence League and Britain First. Electors will also be able to vote for the Heritage Party, a right-wing anti-lockdown party, the Anti-Vaccine Freedom Alliance, and an independent candidate who has asked voters to not vote for her, and a party describing itself as the psychedelic movement. As the UK's Conservative government struggles under the weight of multiple scandals and crises, most recently, of course, it emerged that police are investigating as many as 12 events which took place in the Prime Minister Boris Johnson's official residence that may have broken COVID-19 regulations, and they appear to have been various different parties, in one of which the Prime Minister was apparently, quote-unquote, ambushed with cake. It is possible that this eclectic mix of candidates in opposition to the incumbent party will win some support as protest options, though many voters will probably just not turn out to vote. Now, before we go to our polling highlights, we shall once more make a visit to everyone's beloved European Parliament, where a lot of changes have taken place just in this past month. We begin with Gilbert Collard and Jérôme Rivière, two MEPs from France that were expelled from the right-wing ID group and joined the non-inscrit grouping when they left right-wing Rassemblement National for Éric Zemmour's new party, the far-right Reconquête. A few days later, MEP Maxette Pierre-Bacas also left Rassemblement National and ID for Reconquête and the non-inscrit. Then we have Marcel de Graaf, an MEP from the Netherlands that left the right-wing PVV, enjoyed the other right-wing, but much more anti-lockdown, FVD. FVD had previously lost all three of its MEPs as they defected to Ya 21 in 2020. Continuing with people leaving ID-affiliated parties, we go to Germany, where Jörg Meuthen left the right-wing alternative for Deutschland, of which he had been the co-chairman until this point. However, he announced that he would remain in the right-wing Identity and Democracy Group as an independent MEP. And finally, we have some less dramatic changes, you might say, with Katharina Rinserma replacing Dutch VVD MEP Lische Schreinermacher in the European Parliament, as Schreinermacher was appointed Minister for Foreign Trade and Development Cooperation in the recently announced Rutte government back in the Netherlands. Somewhat similarly, René Herpassi replaced German SPD MEP Evelyn Gebhardt, and the perennial MEP decided to retire from the European Parliament after 28 years, which is impressive. So um, lots going on in terms of MEPs moving around, especially um, on the right. But uh, now let's talk about probably our favourite thing to discuss, Ewan, and that's uh, polls. Yeah, polling highlights. Wait. We've, of course, got lots to talk about from across the continent. And our frequent guest star is the place we're going to start this week in the Netherlands, where the National Conservative, Yard 21, reached multiple record highs this week, with the latest one bringing them at 13 seats in a pile poll, which would bring them at fourth place and be a bump of 10 seats since the elections in March 2021. So it's been quite a year for that National Conservative Party. Speaking of jumps, a poll in Greece from the new pollster Abacus Research saw the centre-left Kinal at a whopping 20.7%, up more than 12 points since the 2019 election. Now, this poll is most likely somewhat of an outlier, but Kinal is definitely on the rise during the last few months, giving us the opportunity to shamelessly plug an article written by our very own managing editor on everything that has recently taken place regarding the centre-left party in Greece. Make sure to check that out on europlex.eu. Moving on to other record highs, we go to Denmark, where the centre-right Conservative People's Party reached their highest polling results since 1990, so that's 32 years, with 18.8% in a megaphone poll. If repeated in an election, this would be the centre-right party's best results since 1988. Neighbouring Norway also saw a polling highlight since our last episode, with the Red Party reaching the all-time high of 9.5% in a Norstat poll. The far-left party received its best result ever in last year's election with 4.7%, so that's quite the rise. 
definitely something to follow. Remaining in the north, we go to Estonia, where the right-wing EKRE, Ekra, reached an all-time record high with 27.7%, also in a Norstadt poll. The ID-affiliated party had 17.8% in the last national parliamentary elections in 2019 and has been rising steadily for the last 12 months or so, ever since a new government was formed without them in it. Moving on to Slovenia, where the Green Party Vesna, created by two highly active environmental activists in the country, is reaching record highs, uh, which is quite easy to achieve, to be fair, uh, when you've just been created. We mentioned in our previous episode, the first time it appeared on poll, and in the past month, it's achieved 2.5% in a poll by Nina Media, which is the highest ever recorded for the Young Party. Other new parties that recently made their first appearances in polls are the right wing of Resni.ca that received 2% and the centre-left Kibanya Svoboda that received 22.8%, both in Nina Media polls as well. Resni.ca was launched by the city councillor in Kranj, Zoran Stevanovic, against COVID-19 pandemic measures. And Kibanya Svoboda that got that uh, very high figure of 22.8% for a new party. It was actually previously known as Sed.dej and changed its name following Robert Golob's election as a party leader. Finally, we go to Moldova, where MAN, a party created by Ion Siban, the incumbent mayor of Chisinau, and the former member of left-wing PSRM and PCRM, appeared in an iData poll for the first time, reaching 1.4%. The same poll also showed the National Conservative Shore Party at an all-time high record with 16.8%. Now we move on to our pride and joy here at Europe Relax, and that's our EU parliamentary projection, of course, which reflects polling movements on a continent-wide level, offering an indication of how voters in the European Union would vote should there be an EU parliamentary election. Today, Our latest projection shows both leading groups declining by two seats, with centre-right EPP in first place with 156, and centre-left S&D following closely with 150. So it remains a close race between them, doesn't it, Ewan? Absolutely does. The biggest change this month would surprisingly be the non-inscripts group, gaining a dozen seats and reaching 47, almost reaching the left wing's left amount on 48. But for a more detailed analysis and to see how many seats the other groups have gained and lost and how national developments have affected this month's projection, do check out the full projection on europelex.eu. Now that's all the news and polling highlights from around our continent for this week, and there's been quite a lot of news. Thank you very much for sticking with us through it. Stick around, of course, for a very exciting discussion with political scientist and researcher Raquel Vaspinso. If you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whichever platform you listen to us on, including now with Spotify's all-new rating system on Spotify. And of course, tell your friends about us. That would mean the absolute world, of course. Also, if you have an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic we should be covering, or of course, if you just want to say hi, drop us an email at podcast at europelex.eu. Also, EuropeLex now has merch. Do you want to support us? Are you a polling election nerd like us and just want everybody to know about it? Head on to europelex.redbubble.com and check out all the mugs, maps, t-shirts, stickers, and more that we are producing for you. We are really excited about it and our team is working on more designs all the time. Let us know how you like them. Hi, everyone. So the first major national elections in Europe for 2022 took place on January 30th, with Portuguese voters heading to the polls in what turned out to be a hugely successful election for the party of the country's PM, Antonio Costa, PS, or Socialist Party, which is its official name, uh, by increasing its share by 5.4 percentage points to 41.7%. PS secured a majority in the country's parliament. A significant feat and one of the best performances of a centre-left party in uh, proportional parliamentary elections for many years in Europe. With me to discuss this and put it in uh, a wider perspective, I'm happy to say we have researcher uh, Raquel Vajpinto from uh, the Portuguese Institute of International Relations, Nova University. Welcome, Raquel, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation, Gabriel. Of course. So clearly, this really great result from the perspective of PS is the headline because they overperformed the polls that we were sharing beforehand, uh, which can happen, even us polling enthusiasts will admit that. <laughs> so I guess we have to start with, you know, why do you think they did 
much better than uh, many would have guessed beforehand. What would you say is the main factor? Do you think the reason the polls were wrong is that it was a last minute decision for voters? Well, it's it's always um, it, it's it's a bit early to to have definitive answers on the one hand, and of course on the other, I think it's it's a kind of um, a mixture of factors or reasons. I would firstly highlight the last week of campaigning. I think uh, the current prime minister Antonio Costa showed all his political skills and abilities, and I think that he was very skilled in in making the connection even more visible between the fact that the two parties that were supporting the government, the Communist Party and the left bloc, which are both uh, on the left of the Socialist Party, and uh, and to and, and to pass them the responsibility uh, for having uh, for having launched these elections. That was, I think, the first the first point that I would highlight. The second one uh, is also the fact that. There was this kind of hubris on on the um, on the uh, main rivals, the uh, Social Democrats, which in Portugal is the center right party. So it's actually within the EPP, and um, and 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 that was also, I think, pretty much visible. So I think that was also kind of a trigger that made people uh, go and vote. But to be to be very honest, I think that when we look at the result, what really is like really visible is within the electorate that usually votes left or center left. Uh, there was an enormous um, change or a red- redistribution of voters and of of their choices. So I would perhaps uh, put these two factors uh, together. And and I think that's what perhaps best uh, explains this result, which was uh, from the Socialist Party point of view, really good, uh, really, really, really good. And um, in that sense, I think that uh, Antonio Costa is, of course, uh, pretty much uh, uh, looking forward to uh, another four years leading the country. And in that sense, I would perhaps um, make the point of, of of putting these two factors together, to be honest. Yeah. So I guess what would be interesting now to discuss is, uh, you know, in one way they have their majority, so they'll have um, much more control over the legislative agenda. Obviously, I, I don't know all the inner workings of their party, but I guess most of the wrangling and debates will now go internally. But given the fact that this crisis and these snap elections were caused by the two parties you mentioned to the left of the Socialist Party, how do you think the relationship between Costa and the Communist Party and left bloc will develop now? How will they react? Will they go into harsh opposition to this new government, do you think? Or do you think there's any interest in them, you know, mending their relationship, so to speak? Because, as you say, the parties that were burned in this case were the Communist Party and the Left Party, who, you know, had influence before and no more. So how do you think the relationship on the left uh, will develop over these four years? Hmm. It's it's that's really a, a tough question. Um, I think that in the beginning, uh, this is going to be a very uh, difficult time for both leaderships, either within the Communist Party or the Left Bloc. And uh, in that regard, uh, the acceptance of defeat of the defeat by the leader of the left bloc uh, was particularly, um, uh, how can I say this? Um, you could tell that there was an enormous resentment, um, a kind of um, uh, we we have this really bad result, but it's actually the fault of the Socialist Party and so forth. So I think that. In the short term, 
uh, I don't see how you can navigate uh, these results uh, and, and, and develop a kind of uh, articulation in terms of policies. That said, I think that in the medium and long run, the Socialist Party will now have political responsibility that is absolutely clear. This is to say that in some uh, big uh, decisions, for instance, in terms of uh, either foreign policy relationship with EU, uh, I think that that would be hand in hand with the um, the center right party, the uh, the social democrats, the Portuguese social democrats. So I think that this kind of uh, association that developed within the left, unlike in the beginning when everybody thought, well, not everybody, but many people thought that. Uh, it was probably going to be to the benefit of the of the more junior partners, and at the end of the day, it was actually uh, it reinforced uh, clearly uh, the space of the Socialist Party. To that end, as well, uh, we need to see if there is going to be a change in the leadership of these two parties. And I think that's also important to try to answer your question. Both leaderships are now highly questioned. And in that regard, let's see how it goes. But I don't see in the short term, at least, how you can overcome I'm going to use a very strong, uh, a very strong word, but this sense of having been betrayed by the socialist yeah. party or something like that. So, in the short run, I don't see it happening. In the medium and the long term, well, that also depends on how the ideological rivals they organize themselves, and so. That I think is the um, the second part of the answer to your question. That I honestly don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's obviously very soon after. Uh, but I was going to turn, uh, just like you did, right at the end there, to the opposition because it, mm -hmm. even though obviously the the most important institutional development was the 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 fact that the Socialist Party secured this majority of MPs, it hasn't been bad time for. Uh, the right in terms of popular support. The parties on the uh, on the right, so both, as you say, the center-right party actually um, gained in percentage points, even though they lost the seat. Obviously, uh, Chega, the far-right party, uh, was the biggest winner, and the liberal initiative also uh, grew by quite a lot. So you have these opposition parties now uh, that are... Uh, emerging, how are they going to respond to um, to this? Do you think? I guess most interestingly, the Social Democratic Party will they be cooperative with the Socialist Party, or do you think they'll they'll analyze this as they might have to consolidate their right wing opposition? And how how will they react to this? Do you think? Uh, politically over the over the coming few years because obviously there were some discussions beforehand you know if it was an unclear situation could you know there be some sort of grand coalition maybe not that formal but so like how do you think they'll react to this fact that there now is a socialist uh, majority well um i think that the social democratic party i think that probably they're going to uh, now undergo the kind of um uh, examination, uh, self-awareness, and probably change leadership on the one hand. And uh, I think that clearly the message of uh, of uh, uh, Rui Rio, he, he was aiming at the center and at, at some point um, even going a bit beyond the center. And, and, I, and, I, and I don't think that's, uh, that worked well. Secondly, I think that there's also um, the articulation, whilst I, when I look at the left side, I can more or less understand the dynamics because either the Communist Party or the left bloc, they have been around uh, for some time. Uh, and uh, on the right side, well, it's, 
it, they're not newcomers uh, in the sense of um, particularly I would uh, stress the liberals, which I mean, they, they went from having one MP to eight MPs. And of course, there is also uh, the, the rise in this, in this extremely worrying um, tendency now made reality, which is the Shega, the party that you mentioned, which is a populist far to the far and at the same time very hard to catalogue. And it has gone also from one MP to 12. And I think that's that's going to, um, to introduce uh, even to the... Um, to the um, the working of the um, of our assembly, an enormous amount of noise and uh, and turbulence. I would also argue. So I think that if on the one hand the um, the Social Democratic Party needs to do a thorough exam to the options, to the campaigning, uh, so what is missing from our from our message that we couldn't get across. And um, on the other hand, uh, I think it will be easier to deal with uh, the liberal initiative and rather than uh, looking at this, uh, at this um, populist uh, party. So I think that's, that's also interesting. Another sign of a changing dynamics in this electorate is, of course, the fact that the CDS, which is CDS, which is the Christian Democratic Party, was not able uh, to elect a single MP. And that is also something that uh, should be noted since it is uh, a founding party of uh, Portuguese democracy and at the same time very thorough big questions have to be raised uh, in fact the leader in his uh, acceptance or in his defeat speech he actually resigned so I think that Portugal and Portuguese electoral uh, dynamics are now even more challenging than they used to be in some regards it's it's quite interesting to see and and it's something that we have tried to understand for instance this uh, this um this change from the parties of the of uh, to the left of the socialist party th this kind of voters to the socialist party i think it's it's quite interesting that this was able to to come across and uh, at the same time uh, on the on the right or center right, uh, so much is going to happen and there's so much novelty in terms of size, in terms of impact, that I, I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's going to be a, a quite interesting puzzle to see in the coming, in the coming years. As to the um, populist uh, party, well, I'm, of course, I am extremely worried. This is a populist, illiberal party and in that sense that is of course something that should be highlighted uh, very strongly. So obviously your expertise is also international relations and politics and now clearly clearly this was a, a national election and mostly issues and dynamics relevant to Portuguese nationals that are at play. Unfortunately for some people international questions usually don't cut through in these elections but <laughs> I guess what would be interesting is uh, how will this impact Portuguese relations internationally obviously this means that there will be a very stable government but how do you think the socialist party sees it in terms of uh, foreign policy hmm. well um gabriel i think that uh, this uh, majority and the fact that the socialist party um uh, is uh, all things indicate that this will be a stable uh, a stable government well um that is good news in the sense of uh, when we look at all the big international questions or uh, relationships to institutions and organizations. This is to say that 
uh, when it comes to the EU, when it comes to NATO, for instance, uh, there is a consensus, kind of a, a consensus of these high-profile relationships uh, between the Socialist Party and, for instance, the uh, Social Democratic Party as well. So, in that regard, I think that there's not no novelty there, and I think, and that is a good thing. Secondly, it, I think that the relationship that I find more interesting will be uh, with the SPD, the German um, Social Democratic Party, uh, which is of course within a big coalition. But um, it will be interesting to see the how Antonio Costa and Olaf Scholz from the same uh, political uh, uh, family, uh, they, will, uh, they will get along. And I think that we will be focusing tremendously on economic, financial uh, uh, issues, and of course, also uh, uh, also dealing with everything that has been um, impacted by the pandemics. I think that as everyone else, and I think that that was also one of the um, one of the trump cards of the socialist party it is true that it everything regarding vaccination and 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 the logistics of it all uh, everything was put in practice with the help of our armed forces and in particular uh, its leader uh, which was from the navy but i think that all, that was also something that i think at the end of the day with all uh, that uh, that happened at the end of the day, there is a, a positive um, perception of the management of something that was uh, unforeseen, and it still is quite quite heavy on all of us individually and collectively. So, Gabriel, to be very honest, I think that perhaps here with either the United States or either with the European Union, I don't see much change here. Uh, the big question in terms of um, political uh, decisions that we have to make is, of course, as so many other European countries, is regarding China or uh, the level of Chinese investment in, in Portugal and also uh, our need um, in, um, in articulated with the European Union to actually diversify our foreign relations with other, with not just China, but with other Asian countries. And in that sense, uh, um, I think that it was uh, extremely positive that uh, uh, throughout the Portuguese presidency, uh, we were able to, to put into practice the uh, EU-India summit. And I think that went uh, pretty well. So, on that uh, on that front, I um, I don't see um, a big change, at least from uh, from what I have from what we have now, unless something happens in between. But I think that we we will have stability on that front, and that is also a really good thing in terms of these big questions. Definitely. Uh, one final question. You mentioned, obviously, the relationship with um, Olaf Scholz, and many people are now seeing with the Norwegian elections that happened, where they had a shift of government from right-wing, centre-right to centre-left, and then what happened in Germany towards the end of last year as well, and now this reinforcement of the centre-left in Portugal, there will be some... Uh, people that will start describing this as a trend in the direction of the centre-left. And for people on the centre-left, obviously, that will be very welcome. And it's a bit of a change of narrative, I think, from, you know, a decade where the main focus on everyone's minds has been the emergence of populism or far right. So obviously, this is that's a separate topic. That's obviously happened in Portugal as well, way later than everywhere else, basically. <laughs> but focusing on this still good performance of Costa and PS, what, do you think there is an international sort of cross-country trend to be seen when it comes to sort of centre-left parties performing well? Or do you, would you just say it's a country-by-country 
um, situation? I would go with uh, the later. I would go with it's a country, uh, uh, country to country situation. We could argue that, of course, but uh, I think we should um, be a bit more prudent in terms of making these general uh, conclusions or uh, looking at it from a trend point of view. You also have other kinds of trends happening in Europe. And I think that's, um, I think that's, that's jumping the gun, to be, to be very honest. I can get behind that. It's a very political <laughs> science answer, which is nice. <laughs> no, it is. It is. Um, because um, I am, I mean, of course, there is, uh, there is this, um, this uh, European um, dynamics and, and, and in some countries, sometimes it's even heavier than in others. But when I, when I look at, uh, at uh, a country like mine, I, I would be careful in, in, in making that kind of um, of a convergence to this uh, general trend or European trend, I think that uh, we need to we need to see how it goes in the in the coming years. How we manage, um, for instance, everything associated with the European uh, the EU package regarding the pandemics. Uh, I think it's 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 really yet too 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 early or too soon to to tell, and I think that's that's perhaps uh, the greatest task. I mean, when you look at this absolute majority from a socialist point of view, it was a really uh, significant uh, victory, electoral victory. But on the other hand, it it gives the socialist party an extra responsibility. Now there will be no more circumstances regarding the partners on the left or uh, the, um, the, the heritage, the, what they inherited from previous governments. So this at the same time, although it's a big victory, it is at the same time uh, an enormous responsibility and it, it's taking uh, the Socialist Party to a different level in terms of the political competition. So if you don't mind, Gabriel, uh, we could come back to this question in two years from now. <laughs> Sounds good. And um, as someone interested in politics I, and you as well, I'm sure we will. <laughs> so thank you so much, uh, Raquel. It was really interesting talking to you about the elections and the fallout and sort of more the general environment at the moment in Portugal. Obviously, at Europlex, we'll be following the polls and how they change in, in reaction to all of this very closely. And I know um, you will be as well. So thank you so much for coming on. It's been very, very useful. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for listening to the Europolex podcast. To stay up to date with European politics, make sure you subscribe and of course follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Telegram, Vcontacta and YouTube. We're spreading out wherever we can. So do please follow us. There's no excuse not to anymore. You can find us at europolex.eu and at europolex across all social media and at europe underscore lex on Instagram. See you next time. You've been listening to the Europolex podcast, hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and my colleague, Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronus Karampalas. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Jorgos Kukouris, Guillaume Ferreira de Senda, Yanis Ashakian, and Yavi Debad. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything we do wouldn't be possible without our patrons from Patreon. Oh, actually nonsense that was. Ugh, that was terrible. <laughs>